Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Hello, this is Jen Rubin, and this is Jen Rubin's Green Room. I hope those of you who celebrated had a very Merry Christmas. And for those of you like me who enjoy a day of English soccer, that they are on Tuesday when we are recording this, enjoying a full day of English Premier League soccer. But back to the real world, I suppose. Um, at least part of the holidays are over. And before we get to the new year, there is news, in fact, that is happening. And today I want to talk primarily about the war and the reaction to the war in Gaza. The war continues, and it continues because Hamas will not cease. Israel has, in fact, according to news reports, made a proposal that would have Gaza um, essentially come to a peaceful halt. Um, no more fighting. The Hamas leadership would surrender and perhaps even exit, and they would then begin the rebuilding process. The hostages would, of course, have to be returned. And according, again, to news reports, Hamas has rejected this. So every time you hear now the defenders of Hamas and the pro-Palestinian people, there's overlap there, but they're not completely contiguous, um, say Israel should propose a ceasefire, Israel should stop. They have proposed a ceasefire, and it would stop if Hamas would stop the killing and would stop holding their own people hostage. The president of the United States, uh, Joe Biden, has continued to pressure Israel to, as he says, move on to the next phase of fighting, limit the firepower, get, engage in more precise fighting in this urban environment in which they're in. And in fact, that has happened. And that is why you see the number of Israeli soldiers, the IDF, increase, the deaths of those people increase, and understand what they are willing to do. Israel is willing to risk its own people to be more focused in its fighting. There aren't very many countries on the planet that would do that, but Israel has chosen to do that. Meanwhile, we get continuing reports of the horror that the hostages who were released and the hostages who remain are going through. I must say, I was greatly affected on Sunday, this past Sunday, when I went to the vigil in D.C. at the Red Cross building. Uh, it is um, a large building right across from the White House and the Executive Office building. And every week on Sunday, there is a meeting of people who come in support of the hostages and the hostage families. And although it was the day of Christmas Eve, there was a very substantial group of people there. And unlike the protests you see that are advocating free Palestine from the river to the sea, there is no anger here. There's no hostility. There's no calls for death to Hamas. To the contrary, what the plea is, both here in the United States and in mass rallies in Israel, is to free the hostages, make the hostages the priority, 
get them out. And if that means that Israel has gone as far as it can go, so be it. And there are now substantial demonstrations in Israel. There was a display in the Knesset, a protest within the Knesset, because Israelis themselves believe that Netanyahu has essentially given up on the hostages, that he is willing to fight to the last man and remove Hamas, whatever that means. How does he determine when they're all dead? How does he determine he's gotten every single weapon? But his plan is to continue fighting um perhaps forever, who knows, but not to prioritize the hostages. And that is creating a split within Israel, just as the West is now beginning to raise the cry that it's time finally for a ceasefire. In Israel, the Israeli people are making the same claim. So if you support a ceasefire, join hands with the Israelis who do want the hostages free, who are now reaching the point at which they say, we've reached diminishing returns at this point. We have gotten most of Hamas. We've gotten most of the tunnels, most of the weaponry. We need to get these people back. And I'll share with you the experience I had listening to one of the members of the hostage families. This was a man whose brother still remains in Gaza. In fact, his brother, his wife, and his two boys were all kidnapped on October 7. Since that time, his wife and the two children, in other words, this man's sister-in-law and nephews, have been released. And the children tell horror stories. They tell stories about being beaten with sticks. One of them kept by himself, apart from the other hostages, but with a family. Uh, really a horror story for the children that they will have to live with this trauma. And again, we hear from other hostage families that rape, sexual violence continue as they are being held hostage. This gentleman spoke so poignantly and so emotionally about his brother. You could see in his eyes this deep sadness, almost a deadness in his eyes, that he is getting to the point where he is nearly without hope. And yet he comes here, he's insistent on keeping his government, our government, focused on the hostages. And it was a poignant reminder for me that the Israelis, when you get down to it, do value human life, and they do value a sense of humanity. They are willing, again, to put themselves in danger, to sacrifice more IDF soldiers so that they spare civilians. They are willing to take a ceasefire now as opposed to rooting out every single fighter for Hamas because they do value the life of these hostages and, frankly, they do value the life of the Palestinians. At this vigil, this was a mix of American Jews and Israeli Jews. There were prayers and there were statements in support of the innocent Palestinians who suffer greatly. They have been killed. They have been traumatized as well because of Hamas. So I think as we think both backward and forward as to where we are, we need to remember how this began with the horror on October 7 and begin to think about how this ends. And I hope we are much closer to the end uh, than we were 
uh, previously. And I hope that the voices within Israel are heard and that the government heeds their cry. So we will go on to our program in a moment. Um, I want to ask you, however, in anticipation of next week, I am going to hold a special session of Jen Rubin's Green Room. We're going to have a Ask Me Anything. And although anything can be misinterpreted, I'm sure you can ask me stuff that hasn't that has nothing to do with politics. You can ask me about movies. You can ask me about pets. You can ask me about travel, whatever you like. Um, so send your questions in to my threads account. That is Jen Rubin nine, the number nine. And nine has no significance. It's simply that Jen Rubin one through eight was taken. But Jen Rubin nine, send your questions in and I'll answer as many of them as I can next week. And we should have some fun with it. So I look forward to getting them. It's not easy being a Jewish American these days, is it? There are international crises. There is a wave of anti-Semitism that is really unbelievable. I would not have imagined in my lifetime you would have the degree of anti-Semitism, serious incidents that we do today. And yet there is also reason for hope. Let's face it. Jewish Americans have never had a president, or at least not since Harry Truman, a president who gets the Jewish community as much as this president does. When he says out loud, I am a Zionist, that's pretty unusual. I don't know that we've had another president say that. And of course, by that he means he believes the Jewish people are entitled to a homeland in their historic place of origin. He also, of course, is supporting Israel in the current war, which is controversial. There's no doubt about it. There are conflicts that we have had and we will have with the Israeli government, with how the war is conducted, with the amount of aid, with the degree to which they are protecting civilians. But his commitment to the survival of Israel, which absolutely does depend on Hamas being wiped out, is ironclad. And I think too often we take that for granted uh, in all of the objections and all of the criticism that he gets. But I think Jewish Americans have something to be thankful for beyond individual citizens, um, beyond individual members of a political party. And that is that we do live in a great democracy, at least for now. And I think there are no people who have benefited more in America and around the world than concepts like the rule of law, like equal justice under the law. Because when those concepts disappear, we know all too often who are going to be the first victims. And it is important to maintain a small D democratic system, one that is inclusive, one that is pluralistic, one that harkens back to the constitution and the declaration and believes all men are created equal, meaning all men and women are created equal. And I think right now we have to be candid. There's only one political party that believes in 
capital D, or little d in this case, democracy, and that's the capital D Democratic Party. And we have the perfect person to talk about the trials and tribulations and also the benefits of uh, being a Jew in America and also the fate of the Democratic Party, um, which right now I think does carry the responsibility, carry the load for protecting our democracy. We have with us Haley Sofer. She is the head of the Jewish Democratic Council of America. And without further ado, Haley, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, John. Haley, I remember you back in the before times uh, in the Obama administration. You have a long background in foreign policy, national security. Uh, how did you get to where you are now working for a Jewish organization? Well, I, I was in government for a little over 18 years. I did uh, national security mostly, mostly, most recently for then Senator Harris. And about um, mid-2018, with the midterm elections uh, coming up and the stark reality that uh, with Republicans controlling the House, the Senate, and of course, uh, Donald Trump in the White House, that nothing was ever going to get passed uh, in the Senate and where I was working and for that matter, signed into law and policies that were aligned with my values. I... I wanted to try to change the composition of Congress. And my work has always been rooted in my Jewish values. And along came this relatively new organization, the Jewish Democratic Council of America, that combined the two. We, were, we do advocacy on values that align with the vast majority of Jewish Americans. And we seek to elect Democrats who share those values. And... Uh, so I started this work in advance of the 2018 midterms. We had great success in that election, helping to flip the House. Two years later, success, uh, of course, electing President Biden and Vice President Harris and helping to flip the Senate and, and increase that Senate majority in 22. So we're at it again in 24. And in the meantime, this organization has grown exponentially and it's uh, incredibly gratifying because I'm able to do both the policy and the advocacy as well as the political piece of it, which is so essential. You can't have one without the other. And of course, you came just in the nick of time for arguably the worst crisis in the lives of many Jewish Americans, both domestically as well as internationally with the war still raging. When you talk to Jewish Americans, what are, what emotions are you hearing? Are they scared? Are they disappointed? Are they pessimistic? What do you hear from people associated with the organization or just as you travel around the country talking to Jewish Americans? I think there's been stages, like stages of grief. We started with complete horror uh, in the immediate aftermath of October 7th, having never seen a massacre at this scale, who could have ever imagined that the largest massacre of Jewish people since the Holocaust in one day would even occur in our lifetime. And then to see the support of our president. And I was in the room on October 11th when he spoke to Jewish community leaders and said, not only does he have Israel's back, which is, has been so apparent, but that he has the backs of 
the Jewish people. Um, that was incredibly reassuring. And then we saw the rise of anti-Semitism in our country and around the world. And there's been a fear, a real fear. Um, there's been double, double standards being used. There's false equivalencies being used. Um, and there's a deep concern among Jewish Americans. And this isn't just anecdotal. Um, there was a poll of Jewish voters that was conducted in November by the Jewish Electorate Institute that showed over 90% of Jewish American voters are concerned about the rise of anti-Semitism. Those who track polling know that you can never get, never, numbers in the 90s, nearly unanimous. Everyone polled answered their concern about the rise of anti-Semitism. And apart from the moral clarity of our president and of democratic leaders on this issue, we haven't heard that same kind of leadership elsewhere. Uh, certainly we haven't heard it on college campuses, in which we've, you know, many have entrusted our, our children at these schools of, you know, academic excellence. Um, it's, it's, it's been incredibly frightening to see the rise of anti-Semitism. And I do believe that the most important thing that we can do is ensure that those who share our values, whether it's support of Israel or unequivocal condemnation of this rise of hate, are elected in 2024. That's the work we're doing. is of concern to many in both the Jewish community and the world of Democrats that because some of these issues are so fraught, the war, the conduct of the war, speech codes and the rest, that Republicans will exploit these differences um, in the Democratic electorate and either discourage people from voting or promote fringe candidates who will decrease the vote for Joe Biden, who is the only candidate who will be able to beat Donald Trump. What can Jewish Americans do to make sure that differences, even some profound differences on some policy issues, don't impede the work of reelecting the president and making sure he has a Democratic Congress? This is incredibly important because we do see ongoing concerted Republican efforts to divide Democrats related to Israel. Playing politics with Israel's security, frankly, uh, and trying to have a series of kind of gotcha votes. Um, they've even gone as far as to, for the first time ever, conditioning aid to Israel. Uh, this was the first act of MAGA Mike Speaker Johnson um, last month. And then in the Senate, the Republicans have bogged down the aid to Israel uh, by adding 
contentious provisions regarding border security. The reality is that Israel needs this aid. It was it was pledged by the president in you know, on October twentieth, um, and if Democrats uh, had had their way, uh, it would have passed along with aid to Ukraine. I should have said said to ensure that we don't ensure victory here for Putin. Um, and the aid would have been signed into law and and all at this point already with the Israelis. Um, but we continue to see Republican attempts to to politicize this, to use um, aid to Israel. And we even saw this on October 7th. Uh, Ronna McDaniel, the head of the RNC, on a, in an interview on Fox News, that day as as you know, Hamas terrorists were still within Israel, um, say, this is a great opportunity for our candidates. My God. You know, she My said God. that. Um, and you saw them, you know, try to bring that to fruition by having our Republican counterpart, the Republican Jewish Coalition, co-sponsor a debate um, with all those folks who are never going to be the presidential candidate, um, but continue to tout their support of Israel. Um However, the problem is that the uh, the actual candidate, Donald Trump, in the aftermath of this attack, the same day that Joe Biden sat with Jewish American voters and, and expressed his staunch and empathetic support for Israelis and uh, Jewish Americans, the same day Donald Trump praised an Iranian proxy, Hezbollah, terrorist organization, and he was mocking Israel. This also took place October 11th. Um, I mean, anti-Semitism in this country didn't start on October 7th. Uh, you know, it, it rose exponentially during the Trump years because we had a president who emboldened dangerous right-wing extremists. You know, he refused to condemn white supremacy on that 2020 presidential debate stage and instead incited extremists, told the Proud Boys to stand back and stand by, and they heeded his call on January 6th. So there have been incredibly dangerous trends that we've seen in this country that have contributed to the rise of anti-Semitism, the biggest one being that the leader of the Republican Party, who was in the White House for four years, emboldened, echoed, and inspired dangerous right-wing extremists. And so we shouldn't equate that in any way um, with the, those, there are voices on the far left with whom, you know, our organization doesn't agree on Israel. They cannot be equated. And this is one of the false equivalencies that's out there um, in any way with the danger that Trump and extremists in the right have, uh, by allowing anti-Semitism to grow in this country, they've really laid the foundation. And now we actually see a converging of anti-Semitic right-wing extremists and, and those on the far left <laughs> yes. who are showing up to protest, to anti-Israel protest. Um, but the notion that Jews are leaving their political home, the Democratic Party, which, you know, 
three quarters of American Jews have aligned with Democrats for decades now. It's just patently false. We haven't seen any evidence of that. And again, we are looking at data. We're looking at polling. The poll, the most recent polling in November does not show that. In fact, 74% of Jewish voters indicated their support for Biden's handling of the war. Um, it was actually higher even than uh, than you know, those who indicated they were voting for him, which, uh, which we do have 11 months, uh, to work on that, but it just goes to show that Jews stand behind this president and how he's handling this crisis. Um, and he's the leader of our party and the leadership in the Senate and the house, whether it's Schumer, Jeffries, others, those, uh, that are in the positions to be, um, impacting policy regarding Israel have stood by Israel and its right to self-defense. Um, it also doesn't have to be a binary choice between supporting Israel's security, unequivocally condemning the horror that Hamas perpetrated on October 7th, and of course, um, wanting to protect innocent Palestinian lives and ensuring that humanitarian assistance gets to Palestinians in Gaza does not have to be a binary choice. Democrats understand this. Right. And it was remarkable um, during the Hanukkah season when President Biden in the White House declared, I am a Zionist. I don't know that we've ever had a president who has said that, quite frankly. And although the term has been misused and abused, he is essentially saying he believes in the Jewish people's right to a homeland in their historic place of origin. And that is a powerful statement from an American president. So I think um, for Jewish Americans, uh, although it's a stressful time, um, they certainly have the right president at the right time in, in the crisis. And things could be, I believe me, they could be far, far worse. I also want to address the natural proclivities of all Americans, not just Jewish Americans, um, that our leaders are not perfect. Um, we don't get 100% of what we want. We all have differences. And yet, Joe Biden is fond of saying, although he's Catholic, it's a very Jewish thing to say, um, don't compare me to the Almighty, compare me to the alternative. And I try to keep that in mind when you hear people say, I don't like the way Joe Biden did X. I'm never going to vote for him. I certainly hope um, that people don't mean that, that it's sort of a fit of peak um, that they are experiencing. Um, but as you said, there is 11 months to go. Um, are you confident that the Democratic Party is going to come together, that um, if for no other reason, then uh, the fear of Donald Trump will be a huge motivator in 2024? I'm hopeful that that will happen. Um, you know, we, do, we don't want to be overconfident. Perhaps we were too overconfident in 2016. But I am, I am hopeful. And uh, again, the data that we know, what we know about the electorate indicates that that will in fact occur if once again, it is Joe Biden against Donald Trump, because there could not be a more stark difference between two men when it, or candidates, when it comes to their morals, their values, 
what they represent. This goes beyond Israel, though you can certainly contrast their response to October 7th, and that difference is quite stark. But like it was in 2022, I do think that the issues will drive people to the polls with the right to access abortion and efforts to defend our democracy being chief among them. Those were the two issues that drove Jewish voters, but we were not unique in 2022. These are issues that drive younger voters. These are issues that drive that drive Americans, and, and especially in this uh, kind of this post-Trump era, post-January 6th era, because we see the threat that he and the party he leads have posed to our democracy. I think it's important, of course, to look at um, Arab Americans in this moment, Arab and Muslim Americans, and the way that they have viewed the aftermath of October 7th, because a lot of many have, have looked and looked at polling and looked at their numbers and, and wondered how they will vote in, in 24. And, and I agree that it is so hard to fathom that a community that had been on day one of Donald Trump's presidency targeted by this illegal Muslim ban and discriminated against, um, that they would turn around and vote for him four years uh, later, or I guess it would be seven years later. Um, You know, there are so many issues uh, of which actually the the Jewish American community and the Arab Muslim American community uh, see eye to eye on. And the the value of our democracy um, and our rights and the security and safety of our our communities in the rise of hatred that, let's face it, has targeted both of our communities is chief among them. And on these issues, it's Joe Biden who shares our values and has, has defended the interests of our communities. And Yes, the alternative is quite dark. Yes. Um, I will also say you, you started by saying that for the Jewish community, that Joe Biden is clearly the right president at the right time for us. You know, this didn't start on October seventh. He he has been he has been this uh, Zionist as he self identifies, but this supporter of Israel for five decades. And he loves to talk about it. And, it's, yes. you know, it's it's amazing, though. And, you know, a lot of people talk about his age. Let's just say something positive. No one has a longer record right. of support of Israel. Five decades, which also demonstrates that his support of Israel is not about any one leader or party in power. And we saw with Trump the effort to personalize and politicize support of Israel. This is not what this is about for Joe Biden. It's about his commitment and the commitment and the shared values of our two countries, his commitment to the Israeli people uh, in the aftermath of the Holocaust and the Jewish people, knowing that that country is a safe haven for Jews and shall remain so. Um, so his commitment is deep. Uh, it's it's emotional. And it is it is not about any one, uh, any one person in power or any one party. And I think... Sometimes uh, it's easy to get sidetracked. You don't like a particular prime minister or you don't like a particular policy. But I think you're right, Haley, in that what we're talking about is fundamental values. Um, Jewish Americans have always had a rock-solid commitment to social justice, to civil rights, to inclusion, um, 
to support for the most vulnerable among us, um, as well as to Israel. And um, having come this way from the Republican Party, I can tell you it drives them crazy because they say, well, why shouldn't we get a larger share of the Jewish vote? And the answer is because you don't represent their values. And Jews are value voters, to borrow a phrase um, that are Christian brothers and sisters like to use, that it's the values that matter. My gosh, we learned something during Donald Trump's era. If you vote for someone without a moral compass, who is in this for himself, who is in this to bring some weird, dark vision of America, we're going to be in a heck of a lot of trouble, and Jews will be the first ones to suffer. So I think... um, it confounds them, but the answer is pretty simple. It's it's in the values um, that that make it. But I do want to ask you about Vice President uh, Harris, since you worked with her. Um, all vice presidents get a lot of flack, and I think she's gotten a disproportionate share, given the fact she's a first in many ways. But you've gotten to see her in the foreign policy realm, and I'm sure had many discussions about Israel and the Middle East. Give me a little bit of a sense about how she looks at the world, how she looks at Israel. What's her orientation? What's her value system when it comes to foreign policy? Vice President Harris is an extraordinary leader. And without question, her her foreign policy is also rooted in values, just like the president. She, she has a deep commitment to Israel's security, I traveled to Israel with her and our now second gentleman in November of 2017, and I saw it firsthand. She visited Iron Dome batteries to understand the acute security threats and how they're making decisions about when to intercept. I mean, these life-saving decisions that have to be made in split seconds uh, to fully understand Israel security situation. She traveled to the South during that visit. And, you know, she had only been in the Senate at that point for less than a year. But even coming into the Senate, she had given her experience as Attorney General of California. She had a deep seated uh, experience, but also sense of national security threats, as well as the values that were guiding her foreign policy. Since she has been vice president, and I've seen these recent stories, like somehow this is new, since day one, she is, she's taken the leading role with regard to foreign policy, especially in the past year. She's been uh, the leading voice for this White House mm-hmm. with regard to Ukraine and the Indo-Pacific and now the Middle East. So her representing our views, for example, this past weekend in Dubai um, is nothing new. And she she speaks with moral clarity, and she speaks uh, on behalf of the president. And this administration is speaking in one voice, and her voice is very integral to that. Uh, and I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm so proud uh, to look to her, as so many women do, uh, as uh, our vice president. And I'm confident, just as she did in 2020, in helping uh, the president uh, get elected, that that will happen again uh, next November. It's interesting. When Dobbs came out, I really saw her um, really come 
fully into her own when she speaks about women's rights over their bodies, about um, really their full participation in society. She began to use and frame the issue in a way that I think others were slow to come around to. And that was, this is an issue of freedom. And I think what we've discovered is abortion is not a 50-50 issue. It's like a 60-40 or a 65-35. And what makes it clear to many people who are not Democrats, but Republicans or independents, is that freedom is a very powerful message for all Americans. Do you want the government telling you how to live your life, making the most intimate decisions for you? Or do you want to control your own life? And I think she was really instrumental in kind of helping to set that message, which I think has now been fully adopted by the rest of the administration and even, frankly, by the um, pro-choice community itself, that if you make it about freedom, a lot of other differences and issues and non-issues kind of fall by the wayside. This is about, do you want a government telling you you have to carry a infant with a fatal disease to term? I mean, this is kind of mad. This is a kind of madness. So I don't know if you saw it as well, knowing her, but you can really tell when she's got her heart in something and when she is really speaking from the heart. And sometimes she gets mad. You can see it. You can see her anger at some of these other uh, as she says, so-called leaders, which is one of her little phrases, um, when talking about an issue like abortion. Um, so it must be interesting for you to watch as uh, your senator now becomes uh, the vice president. Um, tell me a little bit about um, what you do and what the organization does kind of on a daily, weekly basis. Um do you raise money? Do you um, advocate for candidates? Do you liaison with the White House? Tell us about all the, the categories of things that you do, because it's really an unusual organization in a lot of ways. It is. It is unusual uh, among the uh let's say the alphabet soup of all the Jewish organizations yes. that are out there, many of which also start with J. Um, we are the only organization that marries uh, what we Jewish values advocacy. So it's not just support of Israel. Of course, it includes our support of Israel, but also advocacy on, on other issues that we know are critically important to Jewish voters. So again, defense of our democracy, defense of our rights, including bodily autonomy, um, abortion access, um, ensuring uh, that uh, that the government will take steps to end the epidemic of gun violence, combating climate change, combating uh, anti-Semitism and the rise of hate in this country. Um, these are the issues that we advocate on. And we marry that with election work, with political work. We support Democrats who share our values. We only support Democrats, but not all Democrats. And we are the voice and political home for Jewish voters 
who share our values. It's not just Democrats, that while we see the largest segment of the Jewish electorate align with Democrats, the fastest growing segment are actually uh, younger voters who don't necessarily identify with either party, independent or nonpartisan voters. And so we have intentionally kind of expanded to be the Jewish, uh, the home of Jewish voters in support of Democrats who share our values. And it is um, an inclusive organization that intends to, and we, we continue to strategically target those independent voters who, let's face it, in close elections are determining uh, the outcome of elections. So we organize in battleground and swing states and districts uh, that are going to be critical in this presidential election, but also in determining the majorities in the Senate and the House. Um, we have state chapters and we are doing the work that's required to win elections. We've done it now three cycles. We're preparing to do it again in this in this big election, but we also continue the advocacy work as well. So yes, we do interface uh, with the Hill, with the administration. Um, last night, we, uh, we celebrated Hanukkah um, after the White House Hanukkah party with about 500 uh, proud uh, Jewish Democratic professionals. Um, and, you know, we are, we're preparing, frankly, to win in this next election, to do everything we can, because while Jewish voters are, uh, relatively speaking, a small percentage of the electorate, uh, where we live and how we vote and our voter turnout rate, which is higher um, than the electorate writ large, does make the impact of our vote disproportionately higher than our numbers. And we are a critical part of a winning Democratic coalition. So the organization um, does all that work. We advocate and we elect those who share our values. I want to talk in our final minutes a little bit about younger voters. Um, they have proved to be so critical. Um, and frankly, they kind of have been dumped on a little bit that they're disengaged or they're not interested. But we've now had not only a presidential election, but two midterm elections in which young voters turned out in pretty strong numbers. When you talk to young Jewish voters, what do you hear and how are you working with them to make sure they and their friends um, really turn out and keep their enthusiasm high for Democratic candidates? Well, you're right to identify them as playing a critical role um, in the past few elections. If you can compare the outcome of the 2014 midterms, where you had uh, relatively low younger voter turnout rates to the 2018, where the numbers were up by 10%. Uh, again, looking at 22, uh, again, they were up pretty high. Um, those Gen Z uh, voters are absolutely critical, so important. What drives their votes are the issues. Their partisan affiliation is not as important to them as some of the older voters. Um, but they are deciding who they will vote for based on the issues. So in this last election, you're absolutely right. 
abortion through the lens of a fundamental freedom for men and women absolutely drove that younger vote. Um, and, And we see that that even supersedes partisan divides. When we look at the eight states that have had ballot initiatives on this issue to include the the very red states of Kansas and the a little less red state of uh, Ohio, where the support for the abortion access position was so much higher. And in, in eight states, they have defeated the efforts to limit or restrict access to abortion. I do think this will continue to drive younger voters But it is also critical that we remind younger voters that apathy or a lack of enthusiasm for voting is, in effect, a vote for Donald Trump. If they don't show up to vote, they are electing someone who has said in no, uh, has in unequivocal terms that he wants to be a dictator on day one. He's quite proud of appointing three justices to the Supreme Court who have tried to strip away our right to an abortion. And I do fear that uh, people don't understand the danger of apathy. They must vote. And to stay home again is is an effective vote for Donald Trump. So I, I do hope that... Um, that folks will show up next November, and we're going to do everything we can to ensure that's the case. So what do you tell uh, your members um, as some positive action items? Um, what do you suggest they do, and how can they contribute to Democratic victories? Well, there there are many ways to help uh, elect candidates. Of course, one of them is to support uh, our organization, support the candidates financially, but it's absolutely not the only way. Uh, you know, Direct voter-to-voter contact is very important, especially if we're talking about persuading less reliable voters or those voters that have not yet determined uh, how they will vote. And let's face it, most voters have not yet. They will make their final decisions about who they'll vote for sometime next year. Here we are in December of 23. There's still a lot of people that have not decided how they will vote. So Getting that information to voters is most effective through direct voter-to-voter contact. How is that done? Through phone banking, through text banking, through canvassing. And that work is quite labor-intensive. It requires a lot of volunteers. And that's where our grassroots political organizing efforts come in. We have state chapters that people can and should uh, please join us and be a part of. And those chapters are doing a lot of this work to ensure that not only that the candidates uh, who share our values are elected, but also they are doing advocacy work as well to um, to advocate on the issues that we care about with those whom we've elected and passed uh, elections. So um, state chapters through JDC is a great way to get involved and encourage everyone to do that. And you can also visit our website, jewishdems.org, to get more involved. Um, we also have advocacy items where people can go and write to their member of Congress Most recently, we encouraged members of Congress to sign on to a bipartisan letter 
uh, urging UN women to do something in response, anything in response to the horrific sexual violence perpetrated by Hamas on October 7th and using rape as a weapon of war. Um, because let's face it, it was uh, systematic, which makes it a crime against humanity and the international communities. Um, silence, trepidation, uh, equivocation is, uh, has been horrific. These victims of these crimes are, uh, have been murdered. They can't speak for themselves and we must do more to urge the international community to respond. I know you've been a wonderful champion on this issue, Jen, and I appreciate it. And we have action items, including on this issue, calling for the international community to do more. Thank you. Well, I want to leave our listeners on a positive note. Um, Like you, I was at the Stand for Israel march. Um, And I don't know about you, but I have rarely seen a bigger cross-section geographically, age-wise, in sectarian terms of American Jews than I saw that day, from the most orthodox to the most secular, from really all parts of the country. I don't know. In adversity, there is also a sense of solidarity that sometimes we forget about. Do you see that sense of being there for each other that at least some of us experienced on the mall in Washington, D.C.? I did see it. Um, And it has been now 66 days since October 7th. And I do think, and I've heard that many people who were there felt that that was the one day (laughs) among these 66 (laughs) that they felt that solidarity and unity and, um, and strength uh, strength in numbers and the, the unity, you're right. It was, it was intergenerational. I, I brought my, my son, just as my parents brought me, uh, in 1987 to march for the, uh, freedom of Soviet Jews. Um, and it was inter, um, denominational. Uh, there were, of course, uh, Orthodox, uh, reform, um, conservative, as well as the, you know, people t- typically forget this fourth denomination, non-affiliated. Yes, which is the largest, um, let's actually. Let's not forget them, yes. Um, you know, every, it just felt like it was a great, uh, it was a great coming together from all over the country, but also all aspects of our community, the right, the left, of course, um, the, you know, the Republicans, Democrats, and independents among us standing together in support and solidarity. Um, it was incredibly important. Um, and, you know, it did get some attention here in the United States, but from what I understand, it got even more attention yes. in Israel. And that is so important for, for the Israelis to know uh, that, that we showed up for them in support of them uh, in their darkest days. Um, it was also it was also so important to have the incredibly courageous um, members of the representatives of the families of hostages uh, to speak on behalf of of those who uh, 
some of whom have been released, but not enough. Um, about a hundred have been released, but of course there's still uh, at least 130 or so still in captivity in Gaza. Um, it was important for them to be there as well. Uh, and for us all to continue to remember that we must do everything we can to ensure their release. And also for so many of, uh, of the speakers and, and those uh, holding signs uh, to be thanking the president, um, to be thanking President Biden uh, to, for his um, staunch support of Israel at this time. It was it was really an extraordinary day, and um, yeah, when I think of it, it does it does give me hope. It yes. was a hopeful um, a hopeful display of, of support and solidarity, not just for Israel but also for each other. And I think Jewish Americans are used to having multiple identities. Um, we're part of a American Jewish community, we're part of an international Jewish community um, for. Jewish Democrats, they're Democrats as well, they're Americans as well. And I think um, the ability to build bridges um, among, between all of those communities is critical for the Jewish people. It's probably never been more important for the survival of democracy. So thank you, Hallie, for what you are doing in defense of all of those values. And uh, good luck with your future efforts. Thank you, Jen. Thanks for your leadership and for giving voice to these critical issues at this time. It's so important. And that was Haley Sofer. Thanks so much for joining us for that incredible conversation. Um, I think she laid out uh, exactly what is at stake. Um, democracy is not perfect, and America is not perfect, and the Democratic Party is not perfect. But when you look around the world and you look at the threats to democracy and to minorities that have historically been disfavored, you're not going to do much better than the United States of America, and you're not going to do much better than this political party and this president. So I think although there are plenty of traumas and uh, plenty of issues that should raise our concern, I think if you are concerned, whether you're Jewish or not, about civil rights, civil liberties, whether you're concerned about a particular issue like free choice uh, and freedom to choose how women use their bodies, if you're concerned about LGBTQ rights, if you're concerned about the environment, lots of other issues, and you don't have to be Jewish, um, then I think you should listen to Haley's advice and not lose hope, not give way to fatalism and to despair. Get involved in the election however you want to. And for goodness sakes, make sure you get out and vote. This is all going to be about turnout. For better or worse, we have an electorate that doesn't really change its mind. And it really matters who and how enthusiastically is able to get out uh, the vote. And uh, that's going to be the, the struggle for next year. So if you enjoyed this program, please tell your friends. They can get Jen Rubin's Green Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever they get their podcasts. Bye-bye. <laughs>